Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Death at the barrel of a gun is so commonplace in the United States that there are currently more mass shootings than there have been days in the year. But the spectacle of mass death is only one slender pie in the chart of American gun violence. Many more die of suicide or accident, and as the number of guns outpace the population of the country, there are more opportunities for death, both purposeful and accidental. In response to this uniquely American public health catastrophe, gun advocates argue that the cost of individual freedom is high, but the loss of that freedom would be manifold times worse for the nation. Such a definition of freedom requires our attention. It seems to suggest that freedom as a practical expression of rights rests on the capacity to own a deadly weapon and to use that weapon to kill someone that you deem to be a threat to your personal liberty. Freedom in this rubric exists only for gun-owning citizens, and the tacit understanding is that no gun owner should restrict their freedom in relation to the freedom of others, specifically the rights to live without fear of being killed by your neighbor the right to live in a society of institutional laws rather than vigilante justice, and the right to public spaces unpolluted by deadly weapons. The Second Amendment, a long-settled constitutional provision for regulating a militia that would fight with the government, see the American Revolution, has been perverted by activist judges in the 21st century to mean an absolute right to carry a gun and defend oneself regardless of state safety authorities. With this sea change in the courts has come the gun lobby's manifesto for having guns in every public and private space in America. In short, no matter the casualty count, the lobby and its political quislings seek to normalize the trade-off of the regular mass shootings and everyday murders and suicides for the perception of individual freedom. With me on today's show is Professor Elizabeth Anker, whose most recent book, Ugly Freedoms, works to understand how the idea of freedom, seemingly so fundamental to our understanding of the American experience, is often the very concept that allows for the brutal deprivation of the freedom of others. As she writes, quote, Ugly freedom entails a dynamic in which practices of freedom produce harm, brutality, and subjugation as freedom. Today, we'll be discussing Professor Anker's theory of ugly freedoms in the context of our unending crisis of gun violence in the United States. This show's topic feels as essential as any that I have offered thus far. I hope you'll find something hopeful in our conversation. And now, Ugly Freedoms with Elizabeth Anker.
Welcome back. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Professor Elizabeth Anker, author of Ugly Freedoms. Professor Anker is Associate Professor of American Studies and Political Science at the George Washington University and Director of the Film Studies Program. Her research and teaching interests are at the intersection of political theory and cultural studies with a focus on practices of freedom, violence, and power in U.S. politics and culture. She is the author of Orgies of Feeling, Melodrama and the Politics of Freedom, and most recently, Ugly Freedoms, both of which come from Duke University Press. She is a frequent expert guest on television discussing current events on Al Jazeera English, Al Jazeera Arabic, CNN, BBC, and other networks. I'm so happy to have you on the show to talk about your latest book and the crisis of gun violence in the United States. Welcome, Libby. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I very much wanted to have you on uh, when I began to realize how much your current book, Ugly Freedoms, has to do with the crisis that we encounter again and again on a nearly daily basis in the United States um, with gun violence, both in mass shootings, but also in suicides and the everyday violence of um, having the presence of so many guns. Ugly Freedoms calls into question what we might call the ideal of freedom that carries with a great deal of weight in politics in the United States. You structure your argument around the idea that freedom carries with it, quote, a dynamic in which practices of freedom produce harm, brutality, and subjugation as freedom. This makes the theory of ugly freedoms even more insidious than Walter Benjamin's famous assertion that for every document of civilization, there is an accompanying document of barbarity. Can you introduce us to your idea of ugly freedoms? Sure. Freedom is in many ways the highest political ideal in American politics. It's what our country, you know, claims to embody, what citizens are, you know, supposed to um, value and defend. And for many people, it's the highest ideal that seems to be the opposite of domination or enslavement or oppression. Yet, I think if we start to scratch beneath the surface, we see many ways in which freedom, far from being the opposite of domination or oppression, has often enforced domination and oppression. This might seem counterintuitive, but if we just look at some easy historical examples, we can start to see it in many places. When we look at the founding of the United States, which has often been seen as this radical act of freedom, independence, and world-making where people who were being oppressed and neglected by a colonial power broke free of their chains to enact a new form of politics around equality and self-making. Right? That, that was certainly happening. And at the same time, it was also happening on the land and in, in damage to the cultures of indigenous people who had been living in the United States. So that declarations of world making for the Europeans who came here were at the same time forms of violent indigenous dispossession and world destruction. So their freedom of independence entailed the violence of settler colonialism. 
we can also see it in terms of enslavement and you know a common way of imagining freedom is that it is the opposite of slavery and that's certainly true but for many of the enslavers in the united states they understood their practice of enslavement as an enactment of their own freedom it was their freedom to do what they chose on their property and with their property. It was the enslavement that gave them the freedom of economic independence. So in many ways, they understood slavery to be part of what enabled their own freedom. We can see examples like this throughout history, ways in which it's it's not just that the effect of freedom is brutality, but that the practice of freedom itself entails brutality against mm. other people. Um, and we see it all over the United States today, right? We're seeing bills that are banning racism and sexism in classrooms, and that the argument is that those are either in support of parental freedom or in support of freedom of thought. We see anti-vaxxers who claim that their refusal to vaccinate themselves is part of their own individual freedom, while they're actually postponing a, you know, or, you know the, the resolution of a global health crisis and putting immunocompromised people's lives on the line. Uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were each justified as promoting freedom across the globe. So we see this ways in which freedom justifies domination and violence, um, both in history and all over in contemporary U.S. politics. Those are really helpful examples. And I think one of the things that's quite powerful about your book is that it this kind of freedom as an expression actually of domination is uh, is available to us in macro and micro form. And, you know, that uh, that anti-vaxxer uh, example that you give shows up in a kind of anti-mask form early in your book. And I think that's a really useful example for understanding this at the really kind of micro level, an individual person saying that because their freedom entails that they be not interconnected in any way, either um, explicitly or tacitly to someone else, that they can claim then a freedom to not wear a mask. And therefore, if someone else gets sick, it has nothing to do with them. So is that it, failure to see interconnectedness part of the problems here with uh, ugly freedoms? It is certainly a huge part of the problem. In many ways, uh, many of the most popular understandings of freedom in the United States revolve around claims of individual liberty, which is a claim not just for individual autonomy or self-determination. Individuals can't build worlds, right? People collectively build worlds. So to imagine that mm -hmm. freedom can only be found by rejecting other people both does damage to the ways in which freedom is collaborative. And it also relies on a really violent fantasy that we are all independent of other people. When, mm -hmm. of course, all of our lives at every moment are deeply dependent on the people who are around us, the people who nurture us, the people who care for us, and just the ways in which our, you know, we, we are bound to others, whether we just want to or, or not want to. You describe ugly freedoms as being intermingled and in some ways inseparable from neoliberalism and late capital. Can you describe that relationship? 
So we're, a lot of the language of neoliberalism is about freedom. It is about the freedom from state oppression. It is about the freedom of individual responsibility. And it's often about the freedom of capital flows. And each of these understandings of freedom justify the policy provisions of neoliberalism, which are about uh, deregulating business because the state is seen to only oppress businesses. It is about Mm -hmm. deregulating pollution or climate violence. It is about defunding welfare because welfare promotes state dependence rather than supporting individual freedom. So in many forms of neoliberalism, all the kind of risk of, of economics and politics and society devolves onto individuals who are claimed to be solely responsible for what happens in their world, right? The famous bootstraps narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what this does is this narrative of freedom produces incredibly ugly effects. It destroys all of our social support systems, both the ones that we understand as a state to be able to provide for people who are vulnerable, who are unemployed, who require disability support. It destroys those kind of social support systems. It deepens the ideology of understanding other people not as resources for flourishing in this world, but as forms of competition and threat. Mm. It creates unprecedented economic inequality and elite wealth as so much money with the deregulation of business is siphoned upward to, you know, elites to create, you know, virtually unprecedented levels of economic inequality in world history. And it also trashes the environment and contributes to climate change. So many of the most violent and ugly effects of neoliberalism are justified in the name of freedom. You begin the book with a historical an- uh, anecdote about U.S. forces using an early form of waterboarding, then called the water cure, to torture Filipino anti-colonial insurgents. The American torturers invent a song which relates shoving a hose pipe down a prisoner's throat with freedom. Why was this an important scene for your introduction to the way that ugly freedoms operate in the United States? The song, which is called The Water Cure in the Philippine Islands, um, in many ways reveals in vivid form the brutal violence that can be enacted as freedom. As you note, the song justifies torture. It justifies imperialism and occupation. It justifies allusions to rape and to white supremacy, all are described in the song as expressions of freedom, in particular, the freedom of the American soldiers here. And the song is sung quite gleefully. So it speaks in many ways to the the popularity of the ugliness of freedom and the way in which it just saturates our public culture. The other thing I think the song helps us to see is that people who were against the Uh, the war in the Philippines and against imperialism more broadly, once they heard about the water cure and the torture that was being enacted by U.S. soldiers, they challenged the response um, by claiming that, you know, not only that it was awful and horrible, but that this was anathema to American values of Mm -hmm, freedom. mm -hmm. And I think it helps us to see the ways in which, right, their claim that it is a, you know, that it is, a, you know, morally horrifying is certainly fair and just. But the claim that this is not an American value 
that torture is not freedom is part of the way in which the ugliness of freedom is perpetually disavowed. And it shows the ways in which even you know, critics of these kinds of violence still want to always uphold freedom as an unblemished ideal, mm-hmm. as the pinnacle of American values. So the song shows us how easy it is for people who might criticize acts of torture to still want to not equate it with freedom, to imagine that freedom could be separable from this. But I want us to use the song to think about the ways in which the ugliness of freedom is not only pervasive, but is often deeply disavowed so that people can continue to idealize freedom at all times. And I want us to de-idealize practices of freedom. I remember so clearly the logical knots that George W. Bush and his administration tied themselves in when confronted with the fact that they were using waterboarding and being forced to define that as either torture or not. And I remember famously um, uh, George W. saying, well, America is a place that doesn't torture, therefore this is not torture, which is a obviously a tortured um, uh, logicism and just shows very clearly the way in which freedom can never be blemished in your terms. And therefore, you find ways to incorporate in these practices to something that, you know, is alternate to freedom or must be defined with other language um, in order to fit into the unblemished form of freedom. But in fact, it is an an endorsement of freedom and part of its very nature as you describe it. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I also want to emphasize is I think when we see how much violence has been enacted by practices of freedom and, and what it means to de-idealize freedom does not mean that we discard freedom. It doesn't mean that freedom is therefore so tainted by violence that it's now not a useful or valuable concept anymore, right? Freedom is still, I think, one of the best ways for us to describe what does it mean to come together and to live in a flourishing world where we all have say and agency and equal power to determine the course of our lives and our shared lives. So I think the challenge is not just to not to discard freedom, but to think about how do we practice freedom in different ways ways, Hmm. ways that are deeply attentive to the forms of violence and domination that have otherwise been legitimated as freedom and to think about freedom differently. But has the word been so thoroughly co-opted for such a long period of time that that we need different language or are we or or can we use outside examples outside the U.S. context via which to recuperate the term? Great. You know, I, I do think that we can find many examples of freedom that are being used in different ways. And I don't think we even need to look outside the U.S., though obviously that kind of comparative work is very helpful. I think we need to look for practices of freedom that have in the past been considered unworthy of the name or overlooked or practiced by people who are considered unable to, you know, to to perform the high ideal of freedom. And oftentimes when we try to look for practices of freedom in these neglected spaces, we find something different, a freedom that might not be described as, you know, the heroic freedoms of masculinist strength or grand cathartic gestures of freedom, but are often forms of freedom that are about collaborative world-making 
that are about, you know, in kind of embracing difference, that are about um, making the world uh, one in which more people can flourish rather than the ones in which we've narrowed it down to, you know, economic or racial elites. And to think about what makes freedom in a less ideal space, but that makes it significantly more approachable and more within reach, especially of people who have been considered unworthy of freedom or have been so busy doggy paddling to survive that their lives are seen to be, you know, unworthy of freedom's mantle. It's there that I think that we can find practices of freedom that are more about collaborative world making than individual domination. That's beautifully said. I'm going to keep collaborative world making as my mantra going forward. <laughs> um, can you explain how your theory of ugly freedoms might apply to the unique problem of gun violence in America? Um, in many ways, gun violence is, you know, in, in a, a central example of ugly freedom, right? Guns are considered to be a practice of freedom in contemporary U.S. politics, that gun ownership is said to be the ways in which individuals secure their freedom. It is said to be a freedom that is now enshrined in constitutional law, even though that claim that guns are about individual freedom is quite new. And guns also, you know, not only are they instruments of death, and so there's a claim here when we say that guns ensure individual freedom, where we're saying that freedom is about the capacity to have an instrument of death. But guns show how the claim, um, a, a traditional claim in political theory, that individual freedom is the capacity to do what you choose or what you will, as long as you are not harming another. It's called the harm principle, that your freedom ends if you are about to harm another. But guns show that this claim is a false claim. Because in gun ownership, individual freedom is the capacity to harm another. And it expresses a particular type of freedom, that freedom is the capacity to assess whether somebody else deem, is deemed a threat, whether you deem them a threat, mm -hmm. whether you are able to have that power of life and death over another human being. So freedom here is, you know, and gun use is more than what it had been traditionally as a protection of the self or a protection of property. And here it is an expression of the individual capacity to determine the life or death of another human being. And I think that in many ways is ugliness in its purest form. Gun ownership has been inscribed as a personal right very recently with the 2008 Supreme Court case Heller versus D.C. that said an individual has a right to have a gun in their home, which then expanded out to a, to a federal um, ruling as well. Prior to this, all previous case law had endorsed the idea that a well-regulated militia was substantively different than individual ownership. Can the theory of ugly freedom be useful in understanding how activist judges felt empowered to radically change the idea of the Second Amendment and then basically tell us we had just gotten it wrong all the way along? The in, the justices did embrace this kind of ugly freedom, making a claim both that individual gun ownership is an expression, a necessary expression of freedom, a necessary practice of freedom, and making a claim that they could backdate it to the origins of our, you know, of the founding of the nation. 
And yet they did not invent these claims. They certainly enacted it at the highest levels, but their, that, that belief system was put in place over previous decades through you know, intentional work from the NRA, from uh, from gun groups, from gun owners and manufacturers in their own advertising. It was a claim that they made where the you know guns have always been prevalent in the U.S., but oftentimes it was more around a narrative of individual sport or recreation. And the change to making gun ownership about the necessity of self-defense and about freedom uh, came about in the 70s and 80s as a concerted effort to justify not only having guns, but but the massive increase and the increased profitization of guns and the increased power of the gun lobby. So the Supreme Court is making those claims, but they did not invent them. In many ways, they are merely the final effects of an ongoing campaign to make guns, you know, to, to proliferate guns in, for economic reasons and also for political ones. Have you been following the oral arguments uh, on the the New York case, the um, New York Pistol and Rifle Club um, case that's going to come down soon about whether New York can restrict the ways in which people can carry a gun outside their home? I have been following them, yes. I was I, I was stunned by Justice Alito's statement or I guess argument that he made over the course of several lines of questioning that essentially there is a certain kind of person who needs to be protected by a gun against just a slew of dangerous criminals who are themselves avoiding New York law by carrying guns around with them. And therefore, the, you know, clerk who leaves their job at night and goes on the subway needs to have a gun to be able to stop and presumably kill those people who already have guns. It projects a sort of not only Wild West, but an almost kind of dystopian Blade Runner future in which everyone's safety comes down to how quick they are on the draw. Did were you similarly stunned by this line of argument? I was stunned by the argument but not surprised that Alito made it. In many ways Alito is the court's uh strongest embodiment of a kind of toxic white masculinity that both kind of heroizes or, or demands the strength, you know, the, the, the power of white men to be able to dictate the terms of American nationhood. And that also draws on a deep wellspring of a kind of racial resentment and gendered resentment that plays out not, you know, not only in his uh, the leaked abortion opinion where he's going to overturn Roe by making claims about, you know, the damages that women can do if they choose to pursue abortions and the the, the dystopia that he's drawing on, imagining that his position will challenge, but also the ways in which his the language of his understanding of the urban landscape draws on the racialization of criminality, mm. the way it draws mm-hmm. on claims that state regulation is a form of weakness and we just need a form of toughness that can, you know, allow for deregulation, right? That there's weakness in actually trying to regulate guns as if that enables criminality. Um, and so I think part of where Alito comes from is 
he buys into many of these ideas about what freedom can be, who its ideal subject is, which is often a white man, a strong white man whose job is to protect himself or his you know, heterosexual nuclear family and his wife, that people you know, are otherwise navigating a really dangerous space. And it's up to him and people of his ilk to end those kinds of criminal violences, whether that's you know, gun violence or the way he imagines abortion to be a form of, of violence. Um, and, and so I see those as, as kind of two pieces of together of the story that Alito tells about America and about his understanding of what will bring back traditional hierarchies that for him are a form of freedom. And to think about it in, in the terms of your book, the freedom of that, that theoretical white man is constantly endorsed by his ability to subjugate others with a, with a weapon and therefore, you know, must be preserved. Yep. It's to, and to subjugate, you know, women as well, right? That that's right. That he kind of knows what's best for all women, all people, you know, that, that he can determine childbearing futures, that he can determine whether people are able to carry guns, whether or not even the will of the people want them to be able to have that capacity, right? He's the one who knows best. A principal piece of your argument is that thinking only in terms of macro revolutionary changes to our system might cause us to miss the ways in which individual and micro resistance can be deeply important to changing how we understand freedom. Can you explain this principle and does it point to particular micro resistances in the fight to end gun violence? This is where the second type of ugly freedom comes into the discussion. So I use the term ugly freedom in two ways. On the one hand, it's an attempt to de-idealize practices of freedom that enact harm. But I also draw on ugly freedoms in a second sense, which are the freedoms that can be found, as I mentioned briefly earlier, in disparage or neglected spaces or by people who have traditionally been considered unworthy of freedom, enacted in practices that might be overlooked or deemed too insignificant to carry the, you know, the mantle of freedom. So this second type of ugly freedom is more of a recuperative project that looks for forms of freedom in spaces that are otherwise deemed unworthy of it. And I think we can see that um, you know, in urban spaces that are often, uh, you know, blighted or considered spaces of neglect, we can see it by people who are often considered lowest on status hierarchies of race and gender and sexuality, and to see what kind of world making practices they are able to craft, even within the narrow and constrained spaces in which they're forced to live. And I would like us to attend to those spaces to see what kind of freedoms are there, freedoms that are actually more accessible, that do not demand that we are ideal subjects, an ideal subject that's often predicated on somebody like Samuel Alito, right? So it's not requiring us to be shoehorned into forms of ideal subjectivity that connect with whiteness or masculinity or heroism. And I think this also allows us to see more capacities for freedom all around us to see it in spaces that otherwise we might not look. And I think that's part of the task of where we can imagine freedom at this moment, which is not to neglect or, or not to devalue 
forms of freedom that are invested in you know, dramatic transformations of the unequal and unjust world in which we live, but to show ways in which freedom can happen even in these smaller spaces without therefore deeming them as, um, as devalued or unworthy. You aren't afraid to go really small in your understanding of how these um, these acts work. In fact, you have a an example in the book that's that's pretty remarkable, in which you point to a teacher's sigh in the teacher's lounge, working as uh, as a form of this resistance and and a kind of world making amongst other teachers. There, could you explain that example? Sure. I draw that example from a reading of the television show, The Wire, right? the, you know, often considered the best television show in U.S. history that is actually celebrating its 20th anniversary this week. That makes me and, feel very old. <laughs> me as well. And in this one scene um, that can be very easily overlooked, and it's only a 45 second scene, we see teachers um, who are forced to sit in a room where they are being lectured to by a paid speaker that given the enormous difficulties of their job conditions, they are teachers in a deeply impoverished urban school in Baltimore that has been defunded by the city and the state. Uh, the children themselves are given few resources for being able to cope with their worlds. And the way in which the school system deals with these, you know, the, the children's struggles and the teacher's job challenges is to give them a paid PowerPoint lecture telling the teachers to, to, um, to tell themselves that they are lovable and capable and suggesting that just by repeating this really anodyne mantra, I am lovable and capable, that the teachers are going to magically, you know, be revived in their difficult job conditions and magically raise children's test scores. Now, what's important about this is that the teachers are not compelled by this in any way. We often tell a story about neoliberalism, that it changes our subjectivity, that it turns us from being people invested in our communities or, or others around us into people who are just focused on being entrepreneurs or focusing on our own individual risk-taking capacities. And what we see here is that none of the teachers accept this devolution of individual responsibility onto themselves. They all reject it. And one teacher sighs during this presentation, another rolls their eyes, and pretty soon these kind of contagious affects of disaffection lead to a collective revolt among the teachers where they stop this ridiculous PowerPoint presentation altogether. Now, of course, part of what makes this um, ugly freedom in its second valence is on the one hand, they're in a neglected space where they, you know, teachers in a teacher's lounge, you know, uh, listening to a lecture would not be considered the hallowed space of freedom. On the other hand, the actions themselves seem small and insignificant. And certainly a sigh or an eye roll is not going to dramatically transform the educational system from their kind of neoliberal defunding um, you know, uh, functions into a, a joyful and safe, safe place for children to learn. But it, it doesn't therefore mean that nothing is happening. And when we see the ways in which teachers have no problem casting off this form of neoliberal rationality, how easy it is for them to refuse this claim that they should just find themselves lovable and, that, and then all of their job conditions will be better, right? Refusing that kind of narrative of cheap self-help. 
um, we see that the teachers themselves embody a kind of strength and a kind of resistance that I would want us to pay attention to and to celebrate as a small act of world making and collaboration for something better than the hand that they have been dealt by the Baltimore school system. Thank you. That's so nicely explained. Uh, you've written what I think of as most one of the uh, one of the most convincing rationales for the shift in American gun ownership from hunting and sport shooting to self-defense. In your article, Mobile Sovereigns, Agency Panic and Gun Ownership, you argue that the failure of systems of government, social services, and the lack of investment in human infrastructure has given rise to a widespread feeling of agency panic. Could you talk us through how systems of failures get us to massive gun ownership? Sure. Agency panic describes a feeling, a kind of cultural and social feeling of powerlessness, where people feel that they don't have the resources to protect themselves from the ravages of economic power, of the global circulations of finance, of state securitization, that they can't even really map the forms of power that shape their everyday lives. And that this form of panic is especially acute for people who find their worth and value in individual agency, right? The claim that people can, you can do anything you set your mind to, that the world is your oyster, that you just need to work hard and you will succeed. And so agency panic comes out against the, the kind of the, 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 the cross currents of the belief that people should be able to do anything they want against these massive changes of neoliberal power in the security state and the panic that arises from them. It also comes about, I think, in particular for white men who were told more than most other groups, that if they were, work hard, they should be the ones who are able to succeed and that they should be at the top of status hierarchies, right? Like we see Samuel Alito making claims. And for these people, the rise of women and people in color, the relative rise to more positions of either political power or economic security, this rise also feels like an added threat to their understanding of their own agency as being the ones who have more power than others. So agency panic, which is a term I borrow from Timothy Nelly, describes the diagnosis of why people panic when they feel that they don't have power in their world. And it helps to diagnose the reason why many people turn to guns. Because guns in literally giving people the power of sovereignty, the power of life and death over others, seem to be able to grant back a sense of individual control and individual agency that is otherwise denied both by you know, global circulations of economic power and state power, as well as you know, displaced fears that women and people of color are taking their agency away from them. So guns seem to be a solution to solve that kind of agency panic, where it grants people the capacity to harm others, and that seems to give them back their agency to determine their futures. Why do you think governmental bodies, judicial bodies, and the the Senate and, and our past president and others like him have been so quick to endorse this kind of 
sovereignty making because it is at its heart so anti-governmental. It's the belief that nothing about the state system can ever protect you and therefore you must shuffle off any connection to that system of interconnectedness and defend what little sovereignty you have with the life and death making tool of the gun. You know, the U.S. has often been a place that has strongly distrusted state power, but that distrust doesn't exist in a vacuum. And in many ways, it, you know, it has become significantly stronger uh, since the end of the 20th century. And we can see that for a few reasons. On the one hand, right, part of the language of neoliberalism is always that the state is out to oppress people. And that the only way for people to be free is to be free of state power, to be free from that form of top-down oppression as they imagine it. This is a narrative that has both worked in the service of economic elites because it means that right all, all forms of regulation, whether you know business regulation, corporate regulation, financial regulation, are all seen to be forms of oppression. So it works to help siphon money upwards to economic elites. And as Nancy McLean has shown in her recent work, it also emanates from white supremacy. It emanates from a lot of spaces that were trying to rebel against integration by saying that integration was an inf was a form of state oppression against white people. And so these claims that the state is always a form of oppression oftentimes were and still work to support the people who already have significant amounts of political and economic power in the United States. It also derives strongly from once work in terms of, of, um, of integrating state functions, of making state social support like welfare and social security and benefits from the GI Bill more available to people of color and to women who had often been excluded from those benefits. Once the state is seen to have the capacity to actually work in the service of more people, to be able to be directed by more people, to be able to have resources distributed more equally and more justly, we start to see this deep rise of anti-statism. And so this anti-statism also can still correlate really well with, under, with American patriotism, because patriotism connects to a type of American citizenship of what a true American is. And even though we might imagine that the state is central to American life, in these narratives, the state is the enemy of the true American citizen or the American patriot. Thus, the "Don't tread on me" flags as the as the patriotic announcement of the of the Trump wing. Exactly. One of the things that never squares for me, and this is, I think, a, a connected question in the America First crowd's defense of guns, is the prefer perverse nature of their logic. The principal argument of the new gun movement is that the United States is quantitatively more dangerous than other nations, and that violence here is so pervasive that the government is incapable of protecting its citizens. There are many flaws to this logic, but its degradation of the country seems so at odds with its nationalistic underpinnings. How does this logic strike you? You know, I would even say even further, it's not just that America is so crime-ridden, but when we see a lot of people on the right uh, justifying the continued deregulations of guns by saying we need guns to prevent evil, just to stop evil people 
from shooting us, right? Part of what that claim is, is actually that America is significantly more evil than other places, right? Mm -hmm. That the reason we have such gun violence here is because there's, there's more evil here in a certain way. So many of these claims, right, it, it, it incorporate a sense that America is, a, is, is an outlier of evil around the globe. And yet, I still don't think that that needs to challenge, or it certainly doesn't challenge the forms of patriotic nationalism that we see emanating from those same people, because there is a claim that even within the nation, the nation's not just a interconnected whole, but that there are real Americans and not real Americans, that there are patriots and that there are bad citizens. And the state is on the side of the bad citizens. The state is on the side of the people who you know, are lazy or just want to use welfare so that they don't have to work. People who want to take other people's taxes and spend it for their own desires. And that's considered to be something that is anti-American. So there's a real disconnect, we could say, or, or almost uh, antagonism within these forms of patriotism between the nation and the state. And even within the nation, between the people who are real Americans, right, the claims about the heartland or the flyover country or the small, small town rural Americans, as if that's a claim of realness. And those of us who might live in more multiracial and diverse societies and who are invested in those kinds of societies and that kind of collaborative world are not actually what America is about. Right. We're the fake Americans or the bad Americans. Yes. And this logic runs up against um, unrefutable data points that show, in fact, that when you measure percentage of crimes committed against our economic peers and look at things like domestic violence and, and assault and robbery, those percentages are pretty similar with our with our peer countries it is only when you look at lethality that the data set changes it's not that we are more criminal or in in their terms more evil uh, it is that because of the prevalence of guns those types of crimes become more deadly right and that's i think what we often see people who are at, continue to advocate for the deregulation of guns uh, they conveniently you know, skip over, right? They'll make claims that, you know, Americans are more violent because maybe we have a higher, you know, mental health crisis or because there are more violent video games in the U.S. or simply more evil mm -hmm. rather or than the multiculturalism actually, being a, a reason. Exactly. And, you know, the, at the end of the day, the, the final analysis is whether people have access to a gun or not, right? By some statistics, your chances of dying by gunshot wound increase 400% the minute a gun is brought into someone's home. And yet, right, th th that data is never included. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So the Senate looks ready to pass the first package of gun safety legislation in a decade. There's a push, I think, by the media, by the Democratic Party to see it as a necessary baby step that may, in fact, save some lives. To my mind, it's yet another sign that there is no number of bodies that will separate Republicans from the gun industry. Am I wrong? Is there reason for optimism here? I agree with you in many ways. I think the Senate, I mean, luckily they passed even the small modicum of changes that they want to be celebrated for. And it's quite depressing that these small and minuscule changes are something that we actually have to celebrate, given the intransigence of people's ability to, to move on uh, 
on, on limiting the amount of guns and the type of guns in our country. But I also agree that given, you know, it, it is the power of the NRA, it is the power of the gun lobby, but it's also the power of these larger discourses that attach strength, masculinity, sovereignty, and especially freedom to gun ownership. And until those discourses change, we are not going to see a lot of elected politicians on the right able to enact more substantial form of of protection of the populace from guns. Right? It, it's it's a larger social work that we need to do that can help us to um, to challenge a claim that owning a, a a machine that can kill other people is in any way connected to the kinds of values that we want to support in our world or the kinds of individuals we want to be or the kind of communities we want to live in. And there's a lot of unraveling and undoing that will have to be done before we get to that place. Well, that's a perfect, if somewhat, a tragic point for us to wrap our conversation. Libby, thank you for such a brilliant introduction to your book, Ugly Freedoms, but also a really thoughtful and necessary conversation on one of the most urgent problems in the United States today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to get the chance to talk with you. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to the brilliant Professor Elizabeth Anker, whose book Ugly Freedoms is available now from Duke University Press. You'll find a link to purchase the book, as well as information on all of our previous episodes at the website burnedbybooks.com. Be on the lookout for new episodes featuring Julia Glass, Elaine Shea Cho, Julia Mae Jonas, and many more. Until next time. This has been Burned by Books.